0: I'm going to hit play on this, and um, I'm curious because I'm going to quote a verse from Isaiah. This is the verse that we have. The verse is Isaiah 43. It's the chapter we're in, starting in verse 11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. 43 what?
1: 43
0: verse 11. Isaiah 43 verse 11. That's my introductory verse to this text. I'm going to show you this video because this becomes offensive to people. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no savior Why do they even <laughs> because it's exclusive, there's, you know, other oh, religions yeah, aren't true. Really, really. You, mean, you see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm and saying so, yeah, there's only one way. And then he compares himself to the rest of the gods. Right. Uh, who can turn me back from doing you know what I want to do? And that's sort what of we will get into the text itself. But I want to emphasize this because there are numerous times where God in this passage keeps saying, I, I am the Lord, I'm the only way. There's only one Savior, I, I the Lord, over and over and over throughout Isaiah 43. Okay, so here's the question for us. I'm going to move the microphone a little bit so I can hear what's coming off the screen. So the screen's going to project here. How can Jesus be the only way is our question for the day. So this comes from Bill Craig, same guy who did the graphics, because people hear that. We call this religious, you'll hear it defined in the video, as religious particularism. The idea that there's only one true religion. People don't like that because we live in a culture of pluralism. And so you're going to get a bunch of objections culturally about this. So Bill Craig does a really great job with this one. How can Jesus be the only way? Well, the real question is how could they all be right? Or what about contradictions and those sort of things? He's going to get into that. Okay, so I'm going to use this video as my intro. And then I have the text itself. And once we get to the text, I think you'll find that this is probably more devotional than usual by my standards. It's probably because I was in sermon mode. But anyways.
2: In AD 203, the Roman government arrested a 22-year-old woman, a Christian named Perpetua. The problem wasn't so much that she worshipped Jesus. Her crime was that she worshipped only Jesus. She refused to worship any other gods. As a result, she was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. This dangerous idea that Christ alone provides the way to God is called Christian Particularism, and it is as scandalous today as it was 2,000 years ago. Religious pluralism, on the other hand, is the view that all the world's religions are equally valid, and Christ is just one of many ways. Some religious pluralists say all the world's religions teach basically the same thing, so they are all true. But this is clearly mistaken the major religions often contradict each other. For example, compare Islam and Buddhism. Muslims believe there is a personal God who created the world. Man is sinful and will spend eternity in heaven or hell. And salvation is attained by faith and performing good works. But Buddhists deny all of this. They believe that ultimate reality is not a person. The world was not created. Man is not sinful. Man is not an enduring self, and the goal of life is not salvation, it's annihilation. Because these two worldviews contradict each other, they can't both be true. In fact, every major world religion contradicts every other one, so they can't possibly all be true. So other religious pluralists will say, All the world's religions are false. They're equally valid, but equally false, cultural expressions of mankind's search for truth. But why think that this is true? Why couldn't one particular religion be true? When you examine the arguments for religious pluralism, you find that some of them are textbook examples of logical fallacies. For example, anyone who believes that Christianity is true and every other view is wrong, is arrogant. Therefore, Christianity is false. This is a logical fallacy called argument ad hominem, trying to show someone's view is false by attacking his personal character. This is a logical fallacy because the truth of a view is independent of the character of the person who holds it. For example, if an arrogant person discovered the cure for cancer, the fact that he's egotistical would not mean his claim was false and you wouldn't refuse treatment just because he was conceited. Moreover, this objection is a double-edged sword, for the pluralist also believes that his view is true and that everyone else is wrong. Therefore, if you're arrogant for holding to a view which many others disagree with, then the pluralist himself would be guilty of arrogance. Here is another pluralist argument. Religions are culturally relative. If you had been born in Pakistan, you'd likely be a Muslim. But if you've been born in Ireland, you'd probably be a Catholic. Because religious beliefs are culturally relative, they are not objectively true. This is an example of the genetic fallacy, trying to invalidate a view by showing how a person came to hold the view. This is a fallacy because the truth of a view is independent of how a person came to believe it. For example, If you had been born in ancient Greece, you would have believed that the sun goes around the earth. Does that make your current belief that the earth goes around the sun false or unjustified? No. Furthermore, this objection is also a double-edged sword. For if the religious pluralist had been born in Pakistan or Ireland, he'd likely have been a religious particularist. So his belief in religious pluralism is just the result of his being born in contemporary Western society and therefore is not objectively true. Getting these fallacious objections out of the way helps to reveal a more serious objection to Christian particularism, the problem of those who have never heard of Christ. If Jesus is the only way to God, then what is the fate of those who never hear of Jesus? Is there no hope for them? The answer is, there is hope for those who've never heard. The Bible says that God loves all people and wants everyone to come to him and find eternal life.
0: All right, so that's how it's gonna end. They're gonna advertise here. So I'm gonna put my PowerPoint back up and as I'm doing that, um, what's your reaction to the video on that? The idea of particularism. Do you see the, you see the debate that's going on? So Because in the culture, to say it like when God says it in here, there is only one way, people are immediately offended. But what about Muslims? What about Buddhists? What about Hindus? By saying one way, aren't you being exclusive? You're not being accepting. You're not being inclusive. By saying there's only one way, you're being exclusive. You see what I'm saying? So, in our culture, that's very nice that people don't like that. And in fact, I like the graphic they put up there for uh, uh, Bishop Shelby Spawn, who's way out there, super progressive in the uh, Episcopalian tradition. And he basically is saying something along the lines of, well, it's just based on cultural conditioning, right? You're in Pakistan, you're a Muslim, that sort of thing. I like their thing there. It's like, well, that means your religious pluralism is because you're born in America. So in other words, that can go both ways, right? So that doesn't really prove or disprove anything. It just, just shows you where you got something. Um, the truth of the view is independent of where of how you got to it, right? You see, you see the argument there. And so it's really interesting to kind of go through those because God makes that claim in Isaiah. The book of Isaiah says, I am the there is no other state. That's what it says in that verse 11. How do we how do we deal with that in the text? I'm gonna put the light on so we can see a little better. And then I'll uh, advance the slides here. Joel spouses espouses plurally. Yeah, or, or kind of a wishy-washyism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wishy-washyism. That's kinda, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he's kind, he's
1: about, kind of yeah. Yeah, kinda hard to nail down. He's yeah. been asked about Muslims he, he goes, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm not gonna say what they are been in
0: Right. And that's where, yeah, he just really has a hard time. Um I get what he's trying to do, but it comes across, you know, very, very problematic like he's a denying objective truth. All right, so again, just as, again, I put this graphic on, um, this is the argument of hope, I mean, the announcement of hope, and we're now right smack in the middle of this. We got through one of the first servant songs last week, which is about God's servant. We're going to get another one once we get into 44, about Israel being God's chosen. Um, the big, the most famous, of course, of the servant songs is 52 and 53. Okay, so we'll get there in a second, um, or in a, in a week or two. But anyways, I just want to show you that graphic again to remind us where we're at, but really what we're in is uh 43 Now, i want to make a, a point about this this is our theology and I, if we need to take some time on this i mentioned this like two weeks ago but the whole idea that we are israel we forget this um sometimes we kind of make a false dichotomy and what i and the reason what i'm the reason i'm emphasizing this i'm not saying that i don't support the nation of israel right now i actually do just you know okay as a teacher and as a political person i think that they're like kind of a shining light you know in the, in the mediterranean world right now even if Regardless of your theology, I think they're helpful just from a world geopolitical standpoint. You know what I'm saying? So forget that for now. That's not my point. My point is, is theologically, there are not two different peoples of God. There is one people of God that starts in the Old Testament and then after Christ, it branches out. So it includes all the Gentiles that are grafted in because they have faith in Christ. Does that make sense? There are not two ways of salvation. That's another reason I opened with that video. Because if you say that the Jews are saved apart from Christ, does that mean Christ didn't do enough for the Jews? See the problem that you create? His sacrifice isn't enough, right? You see the issue? So there's one people of God. God's promises in the Old Testament to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, are fulfilled in Christ and his church. Because after all, Christ comes from the lineage of David. Christ comes from the lineage of Abraham. How you know so when God says, through you, all the nations will be blessed, it's happened, you know, in the last 2,000 years. All the nations have been blessed. Okay? And so that's one important thing, because when we read Isaiah, sometimes we read these promises and we'll say, well, I just applied to the Israelites you know, 700 years B.C. No, it applies to us now. And something that we have a hard time remembering. Okay, um, Modern ethnic political Israel is not necessarily a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now, of course, God can do anything. So I'm not going to put limits on God. You get what I'm saying? So I'm not saying that I have like a I know exactly how history is going to unfold. So I want to be careful there. However, to say that, oh, in 1947, the modern political state of Israel fulfills biblical prophecy. That proves the rapture is going to happen. That is not our theology, just so you know, okay? We don't talk that way um, in the Lutheran tradition. That's very, very much popular, though, in Anglo-American evangelical circles. So if you read the Left Behind series um, with Tim LaHaye, where people just kind of disappear, there's a bunch of car wrecks, you know, that sort of thing. Or if you've read um, uh, any, or seen anything online with John Hagee. John Hagee's big with this. He has these beautiful charts. Um, of how the end times are going to work. He got, he kind of uh, fell off the uh, the publicity train once his blood moon predictions didn't come true. Okay. That was John Hagee. Um, Hal Lindsey is the late great planet Earth in the 1970s. That was another big for- person that was involved in this. And I usually don't like to call out a lot, you know, specific teachers or anything, but my point is, is you should know that confessional Lutherans have never <laughs> taken that position. Okay. We've always been all We believe there's one people of God and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, Christ's life, death, and resurrection is enough for all, including the Jews. And that's who he came to first. Okay, first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. If you say there's two ways of salvation or that Israel's going to be saved separately from the church, that's actually impugning on the sacrifice of Christ. Because that means he didn't do enough, right? You see the issue that we have here, okay? So it's important that we, that we establish this. So this means the promises in Isaiah have a dual meaning. So yes, they apply to ancient Israel when they're restored to the land. But they also apply to us now in his church right now. So it's a both and. There's a, there's a double meaning. There's an initial meaning that the ancient Israelites would have recognized. Oh, look, we're back in our land after being in exile for you know decades, for a generation. We've been in exile. Now we're home. These prophecies in Isaiah have come true. That's true. But also they've come true in an even greater sense now in the person and work of christ and in the life of the church so it's a both and not an either or unfortunately we live in a culture that uh theologically this has nothing to do with like you know post-christian culture this is just in the church where it's like you're either like really one way extreme or the other okay so in other words the church has so superseded israel that there's no place for the jews at all they've just been completely replaced okay we don't really ever say that but the other view that there's two ways of salvation is also wrong (laughs) Right. So we kind of cut off the end of the stick on this one. Um, And so it's interesting. This isn't. So going anti-Semitic with this would be a problem. Okay, that's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is there's one people of God. So all of salvation history is one story of God redeeming a people. And when it reduces down to one in Jesus and then we get to Pentecost and the church explodes, that is the people of God. I got a couple quotes for you on this. Romans 9, 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as offspring. That means not everybody is that's an ethnic Jew is actually a descendant of Abraham. In other words, we are Abraham's spiritual descendants. We're included in this, according to Paul, right? Because we're not children of Abraham according to the flesh. I don't think anybody in here has got jewish heritage right <laughs> we're not we're not in, we're not part of that but we are part of these children of the promise you see what i'm saying and so we are actually descendants of abraham we forget that part of the text sometimes so when we read the old testament we're reading our history our adopted <laughs> history when we read the old testament okay romans 11 continues but if some of the branches were broken off and you although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So it would be tempting, and unfortunately, in the history of the church, some people forgot this part. That <laughs> that just because God now favors Gentiles with salvation doesn't mean we can say, look how superior we are. Okay, That's a problem, too, right? So there's an arrogance that can happen. Paul says, don't abuse that. You still have roots here, which is, again... Why it's awesome to spend time in things like Isaiah, because that's our roots, right? We've been grafted in, and now we're going back to the sources, okay? So just know that there's one people of God. We've been grafted in as Gentile Christians. We are part of the tree now, okay? Um, in California, Ralph, Michelle, you remember this. Isn't it walnut trees where they feel like a black walnut and a white walnut together? Because, like, one tastes good, but the other is a hardier like, plant, right? How does that work? Do you remember that?
1: Well, there's also cross-pollination. but Right.
0: I can't remember if it's the black on top or the white walnut on top. One or the other. I think it's the black one on the bottom. Was it?
1: Black walnut is tastier.
0: Yeah, there we go. So it's the black walnut on top, white walnut on the bottom. Maybe that's what it is. Because one's hardier. And so they put the trees together, right? And so it's kind of like that. That's just my analogy that I'm using here with its grafting in. You take this wild olive tree, the Gentile believers, graft them into the original plant. Now, it could be that the wild branches are outnumbering, which is what it's like right now, the original roots. But the roots are still there. So when we go to Isaiah, we're just looking at our roots that we've been grafted in on. Okay. Another passage Paul says, and this is where people get confused. And I want to say this. And forgive me as a little aside, but it's going to make sense for the rest of this chapter. Okay. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does the word Israel mean? So if you think that means ethnic, political Israel, this is where you get some different theological systems. Because they'll say, well, the nation of Israel has to be created again, and then they're going to build a third temple, and then they're going to start the sacrificial system again, and then there's going to be a rapture and a tribulation. And after all that, the nation of Israel will be saved. That's, that's how people interpret this passage, they just so you know. How we look at that, and I have more data on this if you're interested in Romans 11. What we'll say about this is all Israel is all true believers will be saved. In other words, we are a spiritual Israel, just like he said two chapters earlier. It would be really strange for Paul, in in Romans nine, to say that not all of uh, not all the children of Abraham are children of the flesh, right? In other words, he has spiritual descendants, and then all of a sudden switch in Romans eleven and say, well, this is just ethnic Israel. You see that? You see the problem? Yeah, go ahead. Not all Israelis are Hebrew. Right. Right. I mean, who, who, I mean, does that mean, And I mean, well, with the lost tribes, I mean, we can, we can go through a bunch of different things, right, on this one. It creates a lot of problems. I mean, are we talking about the Jews of Ethiopia, you know, the, the African Jews, right? We're we talking about the Ashkenazi, Are we talking about, I mean, because there's a lot of mixed heritage there. The DNA is not identical, right? And so does that mean only a certain tribe? I mean, this gets really confusing, but if it just simply means that God is going to bring in all the people that, that, that will respond to him and that they will all be saved in the end, then of course, well, yeah, we agree with that. Yeah, go for it. Something you said earlier has triggered a response in me
1: um, talking about, um, and maybe I misinterpreted, kind of ignoring our our uh, Hebrew heritage, the, the, the first books and all that. Well, if we ignore that, the New Testament has little meaning. It's right. little, it kind of it's nice, but what does it mean? Right. You have to have that foundation. You have to build upon that. Otherwise, What are we being saved from or for or whatever?
0: Right. Well, they'll say, say, you'll hear lines like, you'll hear theologians say things like, you know, the New Testament is in seed form in the Old, or that in the Old Testament, it's like an egg, and then the egg cracks, and you get the New Testament. You know I mean? You'll hear all these different people that will say that, that it's all there. I mean, I want to emphasize this. One salvation history, and again, Christ alone. That's the claim. It's Christ alone, right? So, because these theological systems that try to separate Israel from the church means that Christ is not enough, or that he's going to have to do something different than what he's already accomplished. So we we get a little jinky, to use Pastor Dinger's, one of his favorite terms. We get a little jinky when it sounds like there's a different way to be saved than through Christ's atoning death on the cross. Partial that's from. Um, the idea that uh, the, the, so I do think that refers to God's people at the time that Paul is writing. So like in other words, whether it's his ethnic Jews, because earlier on he says, I would I would count myself accursed so that my countrymen, you know, would actually come to the safe to the faith. And so that part, and again, all Israel will be saved, since we're grafted in, he is talking about the Jews, the believers of the time who have rejected the Messiah. Right. So that's why it gets it tricky to interpret this, because it's like, is he referring specifically to israel as a whole as in all believers or is referring to ethnic israel you can go through the text romans 9 through 11 there are gallons of ink that have been spelt on this passage to be honest Um, but i'm just giving you a real brief foray to tell you just how i'm teaching Um, but we have um if you haven't seen it yet our ctcr i might have it somewhere that's the uh that's the council on theology and church relations the ctcr okay um, they're an official uh, body in our synod that gives theological opinions, basically. They have uh, ordained clergymen. They have lay leaders and other people that are there, and they release theological statements from time to time. They're there to do studies, basically, for a synod. Does that make sense? Sometimes the seminaries are involved. It's, it's pretty interesting. The CTCR. If you, if you go on the LCMS website, they have a whole thing on, our, on end times. Eschatology is our fancy word for that. They have a whole thing on end times. And they have a whole foray on this passage, on Romans 9 through 11, and how we interpret it the way we do. So if you're interested and you want more details to go through the text, they actually go through in detail Romans 9 through 11 and how, versus, like, say, um, people who are big into, like, say, rapture theology, right? They they show how we distinguish ourselves. Um, But I just want to put that, because my perspective, the reason I'm saying this again, is for Isaiah, I'm coming from this perspective. So so it's not so because people that take a hard line that this is ethnic Israel will say these promises in Isaiah 43 are mostly just for the Jews. That's that's what they're going to say. They're going to make that right. And I'm just saying, well, yeah, it was true back then for the Jews. And I'm not saying it doesn't apply, but it also applies to us, too. You get mm-hmm. what I mean? So that's that's the, the distinguishing characteristic. OK, so here's how this starts. And I underline this. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I think it's significant that we say that in baptism. That's why I have that underlined, just so I didn't forget to talk about this. God puts his name on you in your baptism. Right? Pastor Dinger says that all the time. Right? The name that God has placed upon us in our baptism, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We start almost every worship service that way. So that name, that baptismal name, identifies us as God's. We are his. And so when God says this in this passage, I have called you by name, you are mine, through baptism, that applies to us. So it's important to remember that. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Even more, maybe baptismal illusion there, right? See? Um, And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Now, some of this again has direct historical implications. Egypt, Cush, Seba—that's a reference to how Israel despoiled the Egyptians in the Exodus. Do you remember that? God uh, has the people of—even though Pharaoh is hard, the people of Egypt—they're moved enough to like sympathize, and so they actually give them gifts when they leave. They despoil the Egyptians. It's one of those parts of scripture that we kind of overlook. We think that's probably a reference for this uh, to that event where God actually uses the Egyptians, to actually bless the Israelites, even though they're impressed. But it does also apply because those from a from a typological sense or an allegorical sense, because Egypt, Cush and Seba were much richer lands. Right. And God's basically telling Israel, look, you're more valuable than these rich nations, even though you're not really worth a whole lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're worth more than these nations. You're precious in my sight. So therefore you have value. so again, a lot of gospel in this, okay? All right, we are called by name in our baptisms. We are not forgotten because of our circumstances um, and because of our baptisms and faith in Christ, which comes through baptism, but also through the word of God and through communion and the means of grace. So word and sacrament, we are precious and loved. Okay, so you should know that. That's how that applies. You see how I'm doing this? So now you know my method is. It applies to the Jews back then and still does in some ways, but it also applies to us as people. Okay, we're one people of God. So through our baptisms, we are precious in luck. That's how this chapter starts. It's really pretty neat. It continues, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So does ancient Israel return like this? The answer is yes, right? This is the first diaspora. They come back in the 500s and 400s under Cyrus the Great. So they're dispersed by King Nebuchadnezzar, 586 BC. It's a big, hard date. We know the date. 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar takes them away. The, 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 the talented ones in particular, like Daniel and his friends end up at Babylon. Persia takes over Babylon and Cyrus will let the Jews go back. So this does come true in one way historically for the Jews. Okay, so Cyrus sends them back. They build the second temple. That's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. And so it applies to them. But it also applies to us because does God have people that are called by his name in all corners of the earth? The answer is yes. There are believers even in places like North Korea. They're secretive. They're you know underground. But God calls people there. There's God have people in India and in Africa and in America and in Latin America and there are believers on there are believers on the stations in the South Pole, okay? But not in the Congress. Yeah, <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. I I don't think they're completely immune, but yeah, that's pretty fine. All right. By the way, I gave you a couple other terms because I'm Mister Theology. But uh, ancient Israel returns, and in the universal. And look what I put in parentheses: ecumenical Catholic Church. We as uh, Lutherans do believe in the Church Catholic. We just don't say it a lot in America because we get confused by that term. But if you go to uh, um, if you go to places like the Nordic countries, like Norway, Sweden, um, or Russia, or places like that, when they say the Nicene Creed, and I believe in one holy Christian and Apostolic Church, they say I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. That's how they say it. We used to do it. Yeah, I think we did, and it's in. It, we actually have both in the hymnal. If you look at the hymnal, it'll say like it'll have you like an asterisk, and um, the reason we say the we, Ray, we say it is because in German they did both and so there's both in there and so there's chris there's christian and there's catholic and we've adopted christian um, and america throughout the 1800s and 1900s um there was a big move to not be catholic <laughs> and so because of that we removed the terms we thought it was confusing people actually we've lost something with that because the word catholic just simply means according to the whole that there's one church that's what it means Beautiful. that would that would include the roman church yes. the, the true believers in the roman church but it's not limited to them either in fact, one of the lines that you'll hear people say about us is we're more we're more Catholic than the Catholics. Because we do. We have an actually, we, we have a bigger theology of the church than they do, in a sense. Because we believe it's all, it's the universal church. It's all Christians everywhere. That's what the word ecumenical means, by the way, is universal. So Catholic, it means according to the whole, Catholicos. And then ecumenical means the universal church. So an ecumenical council is a universal church council, like the Nicene Creed where we get that, right? That was at a universal ecumenical council, okay? So it's fulfilled in the church Catholic or the church ecumenicals, Catholic with a small c, if you will, okay? So ancient Israel returns, but it's fulfilled even more. Okay, it continues again, starting in verse eight, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this? And show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So God's being exclusive again. There's another exclusive passage, right? I already did the one earlier. We're going to get to that one again. There's no other Savior. Look at what God says here. There's no God before me. There's no God after me. That's about as exclusive as it gets. God's making that claim. It's not like we're going around saying, ha our God's right and yours isn't. No, we're just repeating what God's telling us. Okay. So look at this. God challenges the nations to show what their gods have done. That's in verses 8 through 9. So look at there. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears, all of the nations together and the peoples assemble. Who can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. It's God's calling them in like a courtroom. Give me your evidence. Show me that you're God's work. Show me that your idols are doing what you say they do, okay? Um, by inference, in verse 10, we can get some pretty interesting theological doctrine about who God is, right? Because if there's no beginning, there's no God before him, and there's no God after him, therefore, that means that God is self-sustaining. He's not created, so right? That's my definition, okay? He's self-existent. He's not relying on anybody else, so non-contingent. He's eternal, uncreated. We can actually get all that just from a couple of verses, right it's just by inference so it doesn't god doesn't sit up there and say i am a i am the singular non contingent being he doesn't say anything like that what we're doing is we're inferring that if there can't be a god before there can't be a god after this is how we could talk about it right god's uncreated he doesn't have a beginning he's not reliant on anything it makes sense to go that route right so in other words our doctrines on this a lot of people will accuse christians of saying well that's just you're, you're you've greekified greekified theology Um, the idea that God is this kind of supreme ultimate being. in fact, our LDS neighbors will say that sometimes, that Orthodox Christians, whether they're Lutheran or Catholic or Orthodox or Baptist, they'll say something like, you guys really believe more Greek philosophy. We've restored the true gospel because you say these things about, like, you know, non-contingent beings and, you know, homoousios, one substance, which comes from, you know, Plato. And you're using all these terms. And that must mean you're really the Greek version of Christianity. We're restoring the true Christianity. That's actually uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will also do that um they'll kind of make those sort of accusations it's like no we actually do get this from the old testament also right these sort of texts this is one of those so you should know that that's something that we uh lots of find in certain realms that you have to deal with um the idea that god is uncreated so i often get that well who created god then uh say that sentence again <laughs> who created god say the sentence again <laughs> and it took me a while one kid finally picked up what i was doing with that and i was like okay do we got it yet and he's like well, yeah, because God can't be created; otherwise he would not be God. There we go. <laughs> we've had that. We've had that a few times. Yeah, go for it. Um, please refresh my
1: memory. Why is it that in the text here, uh, he and me are not capitalized as they are referring to God?
0: Um, it's just a practice. Um, it's just a. Po- it's because it's poetry. It's just a practice of how we do the text. Because in the in the Hebrew, there's a. Uh, it's like all capital letters, right? Same with Greek, right? It's all capital letters in the initial manuscripts. I should show you sometime. It just looks yeah. like. Yahweh I was like all, is all capital. Right. Yahweh's all capital, right? And sometimes they'll do that to show Yahweh. But um when they're it's just stylistic editing of the of the editor. Yeah, go for it. Okay.
1: My translation
0: right. has them all capitalized. Right, and that's what I mean. So it's just whoever so, prints the Bible. Right. She's Greek if I <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's really it's really really what it is is the, it's just because we use the ESV, it's just the stylistic part of the USB. It's it's not <laughs> But hers, they are capital. If that gives you an indication, it's just a stylistic thing. Sorry. Yep, no, it's a great question. Okay, and there's where you're going to get the verse 11. So look how it continues. So verse 10, and so if you didn't make the connection before, because I kind of pulled that verse out before. So starting in verse 10 again, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I am the one. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And then it says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. So not only is there in one God, only one God, there is only one Savior. There's those claims, okay? I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Notice how many times he keeps saying, I'm the God, I'm God, I'm the holy one. Don't forget who I am. Come on, pay attention. Who am I? Who are we talking about? And then this next reference here, Babylon, and the Chaldeans, of course, that's, again, fulfilled in Persia, right? So the Persians are going to fulfill. In fact, later, uh, in a later chapter, God's actually going to call Cyrus. It's chapter 45. He's going to name Cyrus by name before he even existed. Talk an amazing prophecy. And say he's going to be one of the ones that does some of this stuff but he's not the only one it's just part of the story okay but he's going to fulfill this because babylon the chaldeans the chaldeans were a tribe of that culture the mesopotamian culture god's going to actually restore israel here okay so again there's only one way for salvation no amount of works other religions philosophies and science can save but god alone this excludes religious pluralism relativism syncretism Etc. So just so you know how I define those terms. and If you want to know what those terms mean pluralism is the obvious one meaning that you multiple religions are true. It's called pluralistic. We live in a pluralistic society um, and so therefore everything's kind of true or everything's equally false. That was the, what the video was kind of answering relativism is the idea that everybody else's truth is relative to the beholder, right? The way we say that in the arts is beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Okay, that's how we say that what people will do is say that also applies to truth. So your truth is different than my truth. So that's your, you like truth. That's your truth. That's your truth. And that's my truth. And as long as it makes you happy, that's fine. That's how it generally translates. So um, how that's done, and I don't have enough time to unpack this, but basically how that's done is things like math and science and economics and those sort of things, that's the realm of facts. Those are objectively true. But things like the arts or religion or morality or virtues, those are in the realm of values. And so your values can be different from person to person. So they're not objectively true, right? For God to make claims like this, that's pretty hard because now you're saying there's something objective in that realm, not just math, science, economics, those sort of things, but in this realm on things like morality and one way to heaven and that sort of thing, that's relativism. So that's a big popular view, moral relativism. There's lots of answers to that. Of course, when somebody makes a statement like that and says, you know, your truth isn't my truth, then say, okay, is that your truth? right? Or they're all in world absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? I mean, there's ways to answer them. They're self-defeating statements, but they're popular because it means you don't have to confront things. And it's, we are very, very much about being comfortable. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel (laughs) insulted. We don't want, we want to feel safe. We don't want right. And so because of those things, if we're confronted by there is one way or there is one truth, that doesn't make us feel right. Right. And so that makes it hard. I love the Chesterton quote on this one, um, the whole, uh, the point of having an open mind is to close on something <laughs> otherwise everything just kind of leaks right that's kind of all right syncretism is the blending of religions that was really popular in the roman empire in particular okay it's popular again um you'll hear people say things like i'm a christian buddhist mm. what um or like in, in the way i describe it is kind of like the religious smorgasbord so like you go to the the buffet or the buffet line Okay, I'm going to take a little Islam. That works for me. Oh, I think that's pretty. I'm going to take a little Buddhism here. and Oh, I like those meditation practices for Native Americans. I'm going to take that. Oh, and Jesus is pretty nice about loving your neighbors. I'm going to take that part and just kind of blend that. And now I'm spiritual, not religious. I have my own. You see how that works? That's our version of syncretism. How the Romans did it was we're just going to keep adding gods into the pantheon. Pantheon means all the gods. Okay? So we're going to add all these gods to the pantheon. And if you want to worship Jesus, that's great. you got to worship Caesar too, but we'll add him in too. That was the origin of syncretism just as maximum gods as possible so they thought christians were atheists because we only worship one god same with the jews you guys are cr- you guys are crazy only one god so they, they called you a virtual atheist you're an atheist because you only had one it's kind of an odd accusation right but that's how they thought because they had maximum gods okay but again all of those options are actually excluded if this is true pluralism can't be true because as you saw in the video they contradict each other relativism can't be true because we're saying there's only one way right that's not relative that's true for everybody syncretism doesn't work because how can you blend those things when they contradict each other and when god says there is only one way how 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 can you do that so this is this is really really unpopular but in religion in and in, in when we talk about religion and we talk about faith and spirituality it's a hard line right to, to kind of take and so it's hard to kind of explain this to people how can god be both inclusive and exclusive at the same time There is no other way, but it's also inclusive because there's not a sinner that Jesus didn't die for. Talk about inclusive, right? So it depends also on how we talk about it. But just know that those things are excluded. You're going to get that screen. We already went through it, so I'm going to go back to this next one. We're going to continue. Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. That's where we left off. I kept it going. Even the Chaldeans and the shits in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Um, those themes, we've been doing this throughout the, uh, the study in Isaiah, the idea of the great reversal, right? There's waters in the desert. There's um, trees that are coming when they shouldn't be there. It looks like Lebanon in the middle of the Judean wilderness. There's all these great reversals. That theme continues in Isaiah 43, okay? Look at this next part. This is amazing in Isaiah 43. This is awesome. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with the frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied being with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So it's not because of Israel's performance, right? It's not like Israel's doing the right thing here. Look, how God, look what God says next. So look what it says. You did not call upon me. You have been weary of me. They've gotten tired of God. They don't want God telling them what to do. The only thing they're giving them is her, their sin. All they can offer is their sin. How does God respond? Check it out. I I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And this is talking about gracious, gracious merciful God. I mean... They can't give God anything. All they're giving Him is iniquity and sin, and God forgives them anyways, for His sake.
1: How soon were these words uh, recorded and shared with um, Israel?
0: It would have been uh, some of this would have been shared immediately because because we think Isaiah had like a priestly circle, like people around him. Right. We think he was part of the royal family. So initially, the the uh, I don't know if you want to use the word upper class, but the people in the know in Jerusalem they would have heard this right away. Right. Um, and then what would have happened is as these were recorded down is uh, it would have been reread in Israel's congregation, especially when they were in exile. So where they would have really kind of clung onto these promises would have been in in exile. But even at the time, they would have known these, right? Jeremiah's gonna show up later and say much worse things. <laughs> and they're gonna throw him in a well and all that other thing and all that stuff. But I mean, this is very much here, right? That God is going to blot us out. Look how it goes, put me in remembrance, let us argue together, set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father's sin, that's Adam. So, again, he could be talking to us with all of this, okay? Um, All your mediators transgressed against me. That means all the priests were sinners. They're sinners. That's what a mediator is, okay? Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. It's funny. So it's like, it's almost like God's talking outside both sides of his mouth, but he's not at all. This is what we would call law and gospel. We have law. Israel deserves to be destroyed, God's gonna give them over. And yet the very next chapter, which we're not gonna have time to get much into, is called, it says, I'm gonna deliver Jacob to destruction and Israel to reviling, but then Israel's my chosen one. So are they destroyed or are they not destroyed? Well, law and gospel. Okay, so if you go back, the law shows us our status before God. We're not, the natural man does not call upon God. The natural man does not think about the things of God. The natural man's serving themselves. The natural man burdens God with sins and iniquities. That's law, right? And yet, gospel God blots us out for His sake. That's pretty pretty. It's pretty impressive. So I mean, you get this is why we call it the Gospel according to Isaiah. Okay, and even what's funny about this, you know, this is 700 BC. All the mediators, all the priests, and all the religious leaders are sinners. the uh, The record on that is still continuing that all religious leaders and pastors are still sinners. <laughs> That's not not change. We have a perfect record of appointing and electing sinners to pastoral office. That record will not change until Christ comes back. Okay? So that's why we need the gospel. Okay? That's why we need forgiveness. That's why it's a God thing. Okay? So God blots out our transgressions in spite of ourselves. Since Adam, every single human is 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 by nature sinful, both by nature and by choice, meaning that we do actual sins. We choose the wrong thing. We're also tainted just from birth, right? Like it says in the, in the Psalms, surely in sin did my mother conceive me, Psalm 51, right? When David's confessing his Psalm. So by nature and by choice. If you want to do it another way, it's both by genetics and by behavior or both nurture and nature. It's all the above, okay? But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that's really, that Romans fulfills this promise. Think about it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Same thing that that uh, we have in Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 44. So really, kind of, it's it's really kind of a cool uh, chapter. I got like two minutes, so I probably shouldn't start 44. Anybody have any uh, comments, questions on this? I hope this is a meaningful study. I I, I had fun preparing for this one. <laughs> well, you're saying
1: uh, while we were still while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, and that's what God said. I love you anyway. Yeah, you haven't done a thing for me, but, but I'm gonna forgive you. Right, yeah. it
0: kind of puts the two together. Yeah. It? Exactly. That's, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm doing is I'm showing you how, uh, again, the New Testament is in seed form in the old, right? It's, it's there. It's just they didn't know how to express that yet. They wouldn't have quite made those connections. That's why it's so cool in Pentecost when Peter gives his first sermon. It's almost like you can imagine him making all these connections. It's like all of a sudden it clicks. Oh, that Psalm. Oh, in that Psalm. Oh, in that part. So, you, know, you know, like he starts quoting all the scripture because he's like this. It, it's like the lights come on because Jesus is there. So you can imagine his brain working a mile a minute as he's giving that Pentecost sermon. Now, of course, he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which helps, The okay? Holy Spirit's inside of him, right? The Holy, But he gives the first great sermon of the church, birthday of the church on Pentecost, and he's just quoting the Old Testament half the time. You, So you, you can imagine what that would have been like for that light to come on, right? The Old Testament now makes sense. Not that it didn't make poor sense before, but now it really does. Well, it now to life. Right. All of a sudden, there's a living. Now Now all of those promises first now of make right. Personal application. Right. All right. Anybody, yeah, Jerry, what are you saying? Yeah, it's interesting. In this verse, uh, last part of verse 25. Right. It's interesting because we often will say people will often say God forgets
1: our sins. That's it. but this gives a little different twist on it. He says, "I will not remember." Your
0: sins. Yeah, he cho- he just, just basically says, says "I I choose to forget." I mean, we forget. Just because that's our nature, but God doesn't forget. He chooses not to remember. Right. Yeah. He just says, "Yeah, you're right." Because because <laughs> he's he has all knowledge, right? He's omniscient. He's per. He's that's that's a great line. So in other words, God, in His mercy, says, even though I don't have to, and even though I don't need to, I'm going to choose to forget your sins because I'm going to blot them out for my sake. And that's a great line. I'm glad you pointed that. That's awesome. All right, let's say my kids are here, so let's say the blessing. i got to hold them on for a second, then i got to go preach again. So we're going to do this. All right, uh, the Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.